podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and we have a very special show to you broadcast. From Wharton, we're doing a taping ahead of the public play here on October 5th. We are on the September 28th, where we have a group here that is going down to Fort Indiantown Gap for the March for the Fallen. We have three guests in the studio with us, Preston McSwain of Fiduciary Wealth Partners, Adam Butler, CIO of Resolve Asset Management, and Andrew Miller, CIO of Miller Financial Management. Gentlemen, welcome to Wharton. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. It's uh, sort of an interesting weekend for us all going down with Wes Gray of Alpha Architect who helped organize a lot of finance, uh, Twitter and the investment community to go down and do a march, a 28 mile march that we are all crazy enough to decide to do. Um, (laughs) Cool. Maybe, uh, Preston, how did you get to know Wes and how did you uh, decide to go on this great march here? Um, yeah, so first, thanks for having me. Um, how did I get to West? I think uh, was either from Twitter um, or uh, he reached out to my firm to uh, to talk about what he does. Nice. Next thing you know, I'm going to try to walk 28 miles. And Mr. Butler? Yeah, um, I think I ran into Wes at conferences and, and uh, maybe read a couple of his articles. This would have been three, four five years ago and just from you know proximity and being on panels and being in the same place at the same time just got to know him and Jack and the team and uh, now it's grown into this absolutely psychotic activity that we've all had like collective insanity that we're all signed up for and have so you resolved? gone to visit the bear what's that have you gone to visit the bear oh yeah yeah spent over spent spent the night with the bear um, had a good chat with them um, live this morning underneath the bear. That's intimately the, familiar with the bear. So for <laughs> the people who don't know what you're talking about, maybe describe the bear. <laughs> well, yeah. So the Alpha Architect headquarters is at the West Gray Homestead. And um, Katie, his wife, is is kind and tolerant enough to indulge many stuffed wild animals, one of which is a life-sized um Black bear, grizzly bear. I'm not really sure actually what what type of bear it is, but it, whatever it is, it's pretty pretty intimidating. And so you resolve. I, I know your crew last year was three or four people, and this year you have a bigger crew showing up. Exactly. Yeah, we were four people last year, and this year we are ten, which is about two thirds of all the employees at uh, two thirds of the the entire resolve team. So, so that's pretty pretty neat. I'm impressed, and it, as for my Wisdom Tree colleagues listening in, next year, that's a challenge. We need more than 10. <laughs> I am not happy with our turnout this year, but we do have, we had four people last year. We've got a few more going this year. Um, Andrew, talk, talk about, how did you uh, get associated? Well, um, I think Wes and I ended up running into each other um, kind of via Twitter. He sent out a uh, half off for his quantitative value book, so like a great value investor, I bought it then. <laughs> And he uh, threw in a business card in the book and kind of said, hey, email me with any questions. So like a real geek, I emailed him like 40 questions. And he said, hey, we got to meet in person. So things just kind of picked off from there. And now you are a contributor on the Alpha Architect blog. Uh, He tolerates me sometimes kind of uh, learning publicly. (laughs) So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun um, and hopefully kind of keep posting. So maybe we could talk a little bit about each of your firms a little bit. Maybe we'll just go back, uh, starting with you again, Andrew. Okay, so tell, sure. tell us a little bit about Miller fi- Financial Management, How you know what you guys do, a little bit about yourself there. Sure. So we're uh, kind of a, a full-service wealth management shop um, for individuals. We work with people mostly from kind of a half a million dollars of investable assets up to probably about $10 million uh, is really our sweet spot. We do 
financial planning, tax preparation, tax planning, investment management, work with a lot of healthcare professionals, small business owners, retirees, and women-led households are mm-hmm. kind of our main focus points. And we try to do uh, as much as we can for everybody, answer all the questions, help them figure out where they're going and get uh, an asset allocation appropriate for them, and then just kind of work on blocking and tackling uh, from there on out. And you guys are based in Indiana. Do you have a footprint that looks like Indiana or is it? So we have probably 80% of our clients are in Indiana, but we actually have clients in 11 different states. So uh, we work with people virtually. Uh, We fly out to meet with them. Uh, We do a lot of meetings in uh, clients' kitchens. So it's wherever people feel comfortable and however they want to reach out. And Preston, you guys have a similar, well, sort of servicing clients. Talk a little bit about your, your firm. Sure. So uh, Fiduciary Wealth Partners, uh, we are in Boston, but like your firm, somewhat national. Most of our clients are around the Boston area, but um, we also are on planes, video conferences, etc. We tend to work with generally larger families, tend to be 25 million plus range, get involved in what some would call outsourced chief investment officer type services. But a lot of it is uh, helping to uh, to translate what they're hearing from uh, the greater investment community. We have a tagline that we've that we trademarked, transparency, simplicity, and peace of mind. And, and, and we believe that, that that's really the core of what we do. We, we, we help... Uh, we help provide transparency to all the fancy stuff they hear, break it down into simple terms, why, to give them to give them greater peace of mind. Well, so I'm sure we'll drill into a lot of those, how you guys achieve that, how you guys target that. Simplicity, Adam, is that, would you describe simple as what you as what uh, Resolve focuses on? I'd say we might come down slightly on the other end of that continuum. Yeah. Though, though that said, you know, we, we uh, manage private wealth for investors in Canada and the U.S., so... A lot of our practice is focused on education and and trying to make the more advanced methods that we use to manage portfolios accessible and approachable and relevant for individuals. Uh, We also manage funds in Canada and the United States. We also do a lot of education for advisors. We focus in the multi-asset space really because we recognized back when um, I, I came together with my partner that we wanted to try to build portfolios that were resilient to most sustained macroeconomic environments and that the most sustainable way to get there was to try to seek returns from a variety of different mm-hmm. sources that are fundamentally designed to do well in very different states of inflation and growth. And uh, so the practice really evolved from there. So Preston, you talked about peace of mind. So how do you try to de- deliver this this peace of mind? I think a little bit keying off of what you just said, complexity can be appropriate, but it's translating that complexity into terms that somebody can really understand. One thing that I think we've probably all seen is that sometimes investors get into various products, allocations, et cetera, not fully understanding them. Um, they don't have high peace of mind as to the what might happen, uh, how they really work. Hence, maybe they make decisions to get in or out at the wrong time. So we view our role as a, as a translator often to help, again, break these things down so that the various generations, uh, the various beneficiaries can really feel comfortable and hence stick with their plan, stick with the strategy, stick with the product, regardless of the chatter that they're hearing on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, even even somewhat year-to-year basis. Yeah, I think we all mentioned Twitter. We're all we all came together with this this march from finance Twitter. Twitter is where you get a lot of this noise, right? So that's where a lot of uh, the concern comes from is from well, what's going on in the world today? But when you think about the concerns people have, I think expected returns across asset classes is one of the things people worry about. That stocks are high, bond yields are low and sort of standard delivering the return objectives. Would you say that's top of mind for, for your clients? Like, How do you think about what the, the, the biggest challenges of a- allocating your asset pools are today? I'll kind of come back to the theme I was just on. Uh, I think our biggest challenge today and has always been is communicating in a way that larger audiences really understand. People, I think, are naturally inclined to the latest, greatest prognostication, et cetera. Often those forecasts don't come to be, and we try to just make sure that people understand that, that an estimate is an estimate, that a projection is a projection, that a forecast is a forecast. Try to communicate sometimes that the right answer that they hear from someone is I don't know. We we are we are fine saying that, and then helping people uh, go through the education process to understand why we say we don't know. And again, often we find that allows them to exhale 
and hence they feel more comfortable people in the room with a plan and hence stick with it, which we think is really important. It's funny though that the social cues that we typically use as, you know, into function in life, which relate to, you know, how confident is somebody, how charismatic is somebody, how adamant are they in their views or absolute in their positions, which give people comfort in so many different domains in life, end up being miscues in selecting people to help you steward your your investments. And uh, so, you know, many, many of the best managers of money end up being a little bit socially awkward, very nuanced in their, the way they communicate, very reluctant to make strong, take strong absolute uh, positions on anything. And, and many people find that very uncomfortable and it doesn't give them the confidence that they need in order to, to move forward. And so striking that balance is, is what makes for, an, an, or one of the qualities that makes for a uh, successful advisor, I think. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Andrew Miller, CIO of Miller Financial Management, Preston McSwain, CIO of Fiduciary Wealth Partners, and Adam Butler, CIO of Resolve Asset Management. Andrew, how, when you look at, you, you've done so, we talked about you writing some papers uh, mm-hmm. for West. One of the pieces I saw you published had to do with stock and bonds, which is when you look at how you most people allocate to portfolios. Sure. The, the 60-40 is one of the most common sure. allocation. Maybe talk a little bit about your research on stock and bonds. and. Sure. It's, um, well, a couple of different perspectives. Um, one is... Uh, stocks and bonds are kind of the, the main two building blocks of a portfolio. And people naturally think of bonds as diversifying stocks. And the answer sometimes is a little more nuanced uh, than just kind of assume there, there's no correlation between the two. Um, and one of the posts uh, takes a look at uh, that stocks and bonds sometimes have positive correlation uh, with each other and sometimes they have negative correlation to each other. And that correlation uh, is sometimes driven by uh, kind of inflation, unexpected inflation. So as uh, we have inflation that comes in perhaps below uh, what's priced into uh, the the market, or you could look at uh, treasury inflation protected securities, kind of back into what an inflation assumption is. Stocks and bonds can have negative correlations uh, in those periods of time. So you could think 2008 uh, is an example of when we got a, a negative inflation shock. But when uh, inflation tends to surprise to the upside, so think late 70s, early 80s, uh, stocks and bonds tend to be positively correlated. Uh, and you can end up with a portfolio that behaves very differently, uh, even though it's still a 60-40 portfolio, where the bonds don't provide as much uh, diversification as one might expect. And sometimes you can get some kind of uncomfortable outcomes uh, in environments like that. Now, what... You can say, is there anything different about today's market environment than some of the past market environments? Um, they're always wor- difficult to use. This time is different, mm-hmm. but what is different? Well, um, I have another post that takes a look at uh, bonds during really tough periods of time for stocks. So uh, kind of the, the term that's used in the post is crisis alpha, and it takes a look at periods of time where stocks had a worse than a 5% decline in a month and took a look at what what did bonds do during those months. And bonds generally provided uh, a little bit of a positive return. But the paper takes uh, kind of a a couple extra steps. One is it strips out the return of cash. So when you own a bond, you really own cash plus um, something geeks might call a term premium or a little bit of extra return for owning something of a longer maturity than 60 days or 90 days or however you want to define cash. And what we found was uh, bonds had just a much smaller positive return, or or the term premium had a much smaller positive return in those months. And then we decomposed that further into an income return and a price return in those months. And all of the positive return comes from the income component, and the price component was actually slightly negative uh, during those months. So said another way, as coupons, or as the income return compresses on bonds, one would and should expect them to provide less um, diversification benefit in tough months uh, simply because there's not as much cushion there on the income side. So again, bonds are a great thing to have in a portfolio and they do help provide some diversification, but it's not all the time, it's not guaranteed, and it's sometimes kind of dependent on uh, more macro uh, economy-wide issues. 
you know, when people look at expected returns for stocks and bonds, you know, they often will just say the current yield is a pretty good indicator of expected returns. Like the, that it's hard to come up with a forecast for returns. So just that current yield, right? So the 10-year tips <clears throat> bond is yielding something like 1% today, a little bit. I, I a, think that's a ballpark. Bar. Yes. Um, so the coupons are less on real returning bonds. So how did, has that shifted how you think about building a standard asset allocation model? So um, there are trade-offs. Um, all the time. So I, I think Corey Hofsting, uh, also on Twitter, has kind of famously said, you know, risk can never be created or destroyed. It's only kind of transformed. So as one creates a portfolio, you can kind of evaluate risks uh, and trade-offs in how you create the portfolio. And you can keep it very simple, uh, plain vanilla, and, and that works, but you're taking on potentially some um, expected return risks in the future because bond coupons are down. You can create some complexity in the portfolio construction by including uh, perhaps factors or, or investment styles uh, in the portfolio. You can add uncorrelated strategies. You could add things like commodities. Uh, all of those could potentially help mitigate some of uh, inflation risks or, or uh, different issues uh, in a portfolio, but you're taking on complexity and and potentially have people behave poorly because they don't understand uh, the complexity in the portfolio. So one has to kind of, I think, personally make that that decision of being willing to brace complexity for potential benefit and kind of weigh how they, they might react. Not, not to overly make Adam seem what Resolve does is overly complex, but that seems like a natural transition to, to Adam. So how do you think about stock bonds and the types of strategies that your firm would would run is it is it replacing stock bonds is it complementing stock bonds I mean, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the processes of how you view your firm's value added yeah well i mean we start from the idea that we want to maximize the amount of diversity in the portfolio for reasons that, that i mentioned before right if and andrew just mentioned you know bonds are great diversifiers for stocks in some environments and then they're highly correlated with stocks in other environments and you know and maybe we can come back to the the question of given that these relationships are dynamic how does that impact how we should view the construction of a, of a portfolio the sort of strategic versus dynamic nature of the recreation of the portfolio as an ongoing process where i think the standard approach is we're going to set a strategic asset allocation and we're going to keep that fixed, barring some sort of major life change, right? So uh, admittedly, life changes, and that requires changes to uh, your investment mix, but the market environment also changes. And if the market environment changes, shouldn't we more regularly observe the um, expected returns, the relative risks, and the correlation relationships between the different securities, and then just reconstitute, reconstitute the portfolio more regularly in order to best represent the um, the current environment. And so that really is the approach that we that we take, where first of all, we start with a very diverse group of um, of assets and our ETF strategies. It's long only, but it includes a variety of big regional equity indexes, you know, Asia, Europe, emerging, obviously US, um, bond uh, bond markets from around the world, commodities, gold, REITs, these types of things. Um, all of which are fundamentally designed to do um, well or poorly in very different states of inflation or growth, and um, inflation and growth. And um, so once we sort of selected that, well, then what is the what is a neutral, unbiased way to own that that set of assets? Like, what would be the the uh, the prior on on that basket of, of investments? And so then we sort of take the view that well, you know, if the markets are risk efficient, then we should probably expect that these uh, these broad diversified asset classes should produce approximately the same long-term Sharpe ratio. And that's where we sort of get into the idea of optimization. What is the best way to construct a portfolio if we believe that all of the investments have approximately the same Sharpe ratio? And then can we also, uh, on a dynamic basis, estimate correlations? And if so, then, you know, what is the optimal, what is the mean variance optimal portfolio of these investments given that view. And that's sort of a maybe a risk parity portfolio, that sort of thing, as, an, as, a, as a prior. And then do we have any systematic methods that we can use to tilt the portfolio toward or away from certain assets in the portfolio at 
um, at, at different times based on stuff like carry or momentum or trend. Um, these are highly reliable signals that have worked for a very long time for, I think, very compelling reasons. And we would expect those reasons to continue. And um, so when you put all those pieces together, right, first of all, diversity, then what do we believe about the relationship between those asset classes and what sort of optimization or portfolio construction method we should lean on? And then what sort of um, uh, signals should we use or styles or what have you should we use to tilt them and then reconstitute them regularly? That's sort of the, that's the resolve way. And is that, you think that serves as the core or is that, how do you think about you people using that type of strategy with you? Is it yeah, an no, all-encompassing solution or is it a complement? It's a good question. I mean, for, our, for many of our clients, that does form the core of the portfolio, but there's complexity that comes along with that. And it's not just sort of the technical complexity of the strategy, it's the tracking error issue, right? It's the fact that while we may be, we may be deploying a portfolio or a strategy that is, that is optimal or efficient, um, it may not be optimal for a client because in the end, a, an optimal strategy that a client won't stick to because it underperforms for a certain period of time um, is not very helpful, right? So That's another know, Corey Hostin quote. Yeah. I just did a conversation with Corey and he said, the optimal portfolio is the one a client can stick with. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's the optimal portfolio that is the, yeah, that is the closest to the one that, it's the, it's the portfolio that clients can stick with that is closest to optimal. Hmm. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. So, Preston, what do you what do you think about hearing what 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 Adam's talking about here? So, I think it's I think it's all great. I think it's all appropriate. Um, I would really key on what we talked about right there at the end, which is that um, uh, clients. My my consistent experience is that um, all investors, um, <clears throat> institutional or individual, agreed. Um, have a really hard time uh, staying with an investment that is out of favor uh, for more than a couple of years. When they should be buying, when they, they are selling. When they, when they should be buying, uh, they are often selling. And I think many, many studies that we could all refer to, right, back that up. Again, not just individuals, <clears throat> um, institutions do the same thing. And so um, making sure that Again, I come back to this phrase, people have this peace of mind, right? People have um, a, a good understanding as to likely outcomes, good and bad. Um, why, even with those bad outcomes, it might be appropriate um, is just really, really important. And so we spend uh, an, an, an enormous amount of time on that upfront with a client, making sure that we have a, a very thoughtful discussion on what are they really investing to achieve? right? Um, investing should be a means to an end, right? Investing should not be a competition with their neighbors. And when, you, um, when you're talking to your clients, you, and you mentioned you have a sort of smaller subset of clients, but they have a lot of money. So like maybe 25 clients with a broad, big, big financial net worth. How, how, what, how is their financial profile and their goals different than someone with more modest uh, asset values? Um, sometimes it's different, sometimes it's the same. Um, I just had a discussion like this with the prior, um, at, at my prior meeting, uh, multi-billion dollar um, asset owner. And the discussion was if, if, a, if, a, if, if, a, if a certain portfolio is right for someone that has, let's say $100,000, why isn't that portfolio the right portfolio for somebody that has a few more zeros? Um, just because somebody has a few more zeros doesn't doesn't mean that portfolio should be different. Sometimes um, there are opportunities that are presented to larger asset owners um, that can be um, unique and distinct. You know, take let's say the David Swinson Yale model, right? Um, if if you are Yale, maybe you can get better looks, right? If you are Wharton, maybe you can get better looks. Um, but um, we're just not so convinced that 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 portfolio should look that different unless goals and objectives are different. Um, so that really drives. And, and, and sometimes somebody has a lot of money is just as worried about not having any money tomorrow is my experience as the person that 
doesn't have nearly as much. We, we see that a lot. And we were talking about uh, your type of client base, sort of a very high net worth, institutional type investor. And you were talking about the differences in returns and opportunities that might come from things that they're presented with. When you have a lot of money, you might have some opportunities. And, and private equity is a category that often you know, you need, you have to be an accredited investor to even invest in some of these opportunities. Um, but sort of talk about some of the dynamics of private equity. And you, you wrote a post called but- Betting Like Buffett, talking about the returns to private equity. Maybe give some background to our listeners who aren't familiar with your posts and, and your your view on what's happening in private equity and, and sort of this post on Betting Like Buffett. Sure. Um, well, kind of kind of a plug back to, uh, to Wes Gray and the march that we're all about to do um, uh, uh, this weekend. Um, uh, Wes and I have been back and forth a little bit, as um, a lot of others, kind of a network of of folks talking about um, pros and cons of, I would say, broader private investing, period, um, private equity, private real estate, et cetera. And um, a lot of interesting studies are coming out. Um, one of the most famous or infamous, depending upon your views of private equity or position in the private equity world, is one done by Eric Stafford um, out of HBS, um, which looked at... Uh, where returns are coming from in private equity, and some others have done some research on this, but this seems to be the one that's been out there the most. Um, and his research and the research of a lot of others uh, strongly suggests that the returns are coming from small cap, some would even say micro cap, um, especially pre-06, um, and uh, leverage, um, period. <clears throat> and so um, he did an interesting study showing that if you took small deep discount value, add a little bit leverage, lo and behold, you get returns that have uh, been pretty similar to private equity, um, and a lot of cases have been a little bit better than private equity. Um, so Wes and a few of us were bantering this around. Um, I also wrote some previous posts about how internal rates of return can sometimes be uh, presented as a return that investors receive when actually they are returns that no investors have received direct quote from a private equity presentation, actually, on page 52 in small print. Um, uh, and we said, gee, why don't, if, if we want to put our money's, uh, money where our mouths are, uh, why don't we propose a bet? Um, so our bet is the follow, follows. We're still, we're still taking people on here. Um, we'll bet that um, a simple Vanguard extended market um, index fund, so composes small cap, but also some mid cap. And as more and more private equity funds are getting a little bit larger these days, um, with a little bit of leverage, um, uh, will outperform uh, the largest 10 funds that are raised this year. Now, we're not going to know what those funds are until the end of this year, um, uh, but we'll keep track. And then we'll look at that at the end of a 15-year period. Why so long? because we feel the only way to really know what a true return is from a private equity fund is actually after a fund has been fully liquidated. Um, So we're gonna look at um, distributions to paid in, a little bit of a complex term maybe to some, uh, but bottom line, uh, you you paid in 100 bucks, how much was distributed back to you compared to what you paid in um, uh, as compared to this simple index with a little bit of leverage. It's, and, there's, there's a lot of complications, even in that bet. It's like, how do you even, when you when you commit to private equity, you give them the 100 bucks, but they will call it at various times, mm-hmm. and then, and how are you even going to calculate the returns on the leverage? It's uh, interesting very, complications on this very, question. Very tricky. We, please please go. Uh, I have a little blog provoking post. Um, uh, check it out. Um, Preston McSwain, and it's and it's there. And um, uh, So take a look. Um, if you've had feedback, please let us know. Uh but we spent a lot of time talking to academics, not just us, coming up with this, and we're using a metric called KSPME. Um, uh, uh, KS are for the people who came up with it, um, but PME means public market equivalent. Um, so we're gonna look at distributions to paid in using a KS um, a PME methodology mm-hmm. um, as compared to um, the index fund with a little bit of leverage. Um, and, and again, please. How many people have taken you up on this post. bet? Uh, we've had a few. Um, we, would su- we, we would suggest that not many people have taken us up. And uh, gee, I don't know, folks, is, uh, 
is the silence uh, is 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 the silence deafening? Uh, come on. Does the private equity? Do we have a sense of who the ten biggest private equity funds are going to be from? We need to find. We need to get to these people. <laughs> yeah, we Maybe we uh, we 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 are <laughs> we are we we are hoping that uh, that uh, that uh, Warren is uh, listening. Um, we actually um, have pledged that we'll donate to the same charity that he donated to when he made his uh, million dollar bet against. Um, Against uh, uh, Aries hedge funds, um, so uh, so if somebody wants to help us up the bet, that would be wonderful. Uh, but no kidding, we haven't had many takers on the private equity side. So, Preston, do you find it kind of interesting or ironic that at the very time that people are questioning the small cap premium and whether value works or not, that in essence they're people who allocate to PE are making a, a, a pseudo factor bet on small and value? Has anybody talked about that at all? A levered factor bet. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we were um, we were talking about this in my office yesterday with um, with a fellow um, again with a large a large asset owner, as I'll say, versus saying institutional or individual, so um, you know, north of a billion dollars, and somebody who's done a lot of research um, on the private equity field, and um, you know, market caps keep creeping up, so you're not necessarily taking that small cap uh, bet anymore. Valuations certainly aren't cheap. Um, uh, seems to be based upon studies that, um, in broadly, people are paying over 12 times EBITDA um, for companies in private equity. The large multi-billion-dollar asset owner I just met with this morning said that he just saw a pitch that the fund was paying over 17 times EBITDA, um, and uh, studies are starting to show that you know you're talking about leverage, six X type leverage. Um, so, if 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 markets do drop, and they will at some point, right? Who knows when, but they will. Um, if you're paying that much, and then you're levered that much on top of it, um, well, maybe that's why people aren't taking the other side of a bet. So is that that's a good way of describing the bet for you as a firm view that your, your clients tend to be more public assets, not any, not, not any private vehicles, or do you do there's certain private vehicles that you guys do feel like you would invest in? No, I think I think we're and when we say this in the post, I've said it in previous posts, um, we're not we're not doing this to suggest that private investment opportunities aren't worthwhile. There 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 are absolutely some interesting private investment opportunities out there, um, but to suggest that um, private equity um, uh, has as consistently as people suggest and will in the future um, consistently outperform. Uh, uh, in some cases, just simple index funds, um, we suggest is a little uh, is a little overstated. I've always thought that the primary motivation for most institutions to go after private equity is simply the autocorrelation in the book values that they post, so that it seems like the volatility of the returns are absurdly low, and because they don't need to mark all the underlyings to market, and so just you know, it just it it engenders much less. Uh, angst. To our, to our point on before that people tend to sell at the wrong time, it locks them in. It commits them to behaving right because they actually can't do anything but invest and get their capital back. That is true. Absolutely. If you're trying to just preserve the, just extract that long-term equity premium with a little bit of leverage, assuming you're in at the right time and that the leverage has been yeah. um, structured appropriately. Actually, speaking of leverage, what is the leverage factor that you're placing on the public market? Um, only only 1.5x. Okay. And why did you choose just the Vanguard total market cap weight instead of a mid-cap value? Or, yeah. Um, we wanted to we wanted to be as broad as possible. Something is very easy for for folks to invest in and. Um, and, and and we could have gone with a with a deep you know value. We could have gone with one of Wes's uh, you know quantitative value products. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we we first of all didn't want to you know be uh, be promoting our own our own wares, um, but 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 also uh, you know P isn't necessarily uh, small cap value anymore. Um, it it encompasses um, venture, which certainly isn't value. Um, and more and more, uh, for especially large funds. Um, uh, are moving up market cap pretty significantly. Now, what's interesting about this conversation is something I've done some work on, and there's there's not that many, I, I don't know if you, th- tell me if you agree or disagree, 
is there a lot of managers that are actually trying to deliver even that return stream that you're trying to do in the bet, that you're taking a levered approach to, say, small caps? You know, the, the there is some of these more active institutional managers who will, what you know, what Corey called capital efficient investing in some conversations he and I have had. But do you think there should be more of these leverage factors? I mean, I know there's even a firm who's doing Verdad Capital is doing this type of small cap value with leverage. So yes, yeah. there's, and he's been on some of the podcasts that we all we all circle and travel in. But yep. do you think there should be more of these type of levered instruments, Andrew? Um. I would say it probably depends. It would take the right uh, investor base to understand the the point of the product and understand all of the potential pitfalls. But uh, from just a portfolio construction standpoint, uh, the more intelligently you can use leverage and the more risk factors you can cram into a portfolio dollar, uh, typically the the better portfolio you can construct. Uh, you're just using capital more intelligently. Yeah, it's a lot of S in this data. Right? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're, we 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 really want to make clear we're 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 not suggesting by this bet or, or or certainly myself or my firm is not suggesting that there aren't interesting and unique private investment opportunities that come across the transom every once in a while and that and that we shouldn't um, all keep our eyes and ears open for those. Um, we're just suggesting that that um, you know maybe um, in some cases it's being sold a little hard um, right now. And a lot of money is moving into an asset class if if it even is indeed a distinct asset class. I'll be happy to come back to that in a few minutes. Um, uh, it, it, with people expecting returns that 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 either haven't been produced again, an IRR is not a return that the client receives. Um, uh, that has presumed lower volatility because it just isn't priced very often. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't bounce around or, mm-hmm. or have just as much risk. Let's forget the standard deviation. It doesn't have as much risk on the downside when you look to set when you need to sell it as something else. Um, and gosh knows the fees and expenses and costs um, uh, are tend to be higher than most people think. Your point on is it an asset class? Anyone to come back to it? But usually that's a good sign that we should hit it right there, right? The uh, the head. A lot of people say hedge funds are they an asset class? Or are they just trading strategies or high fee structures? But uh, it sounds like you're saying something similar for uh, private equity. I'm, 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 this may be a fun thing to banter around here. Um, I've had this discussion here the last few weeks as well, um, and I'm in the process of writing another post. So I'll throw this out there uh, to a broader audience. Um, to me, I'm starting to think more and more an equity is an equity is an equity, right? Private Boom. or public? Boom. One is, one is not as liquid as the other, right? Um, but besides that, I mean, we could talk about fees and transparency and all sorts of things, but let's just take that in general, right? One is, one is liquid, <clears throat> one is not. One is priced every second of the day. One is not. One is priced the price you can hit the bid. One sometimes it's priced it's a little subjective. Um, so, in our view, inequities and equities and equity, are there times when unique opportunities come along, when it's worth um, uh, tying up your capital? Meaning, I would almost flip this: Is there an illiquidity premium? You know, not so sure, right? Sometimes there's an opportunistic premium, but maybe people should start thinking that that actually there's a liquidity premium, meaning a premium should be paced, placed on liquidity, and you should only allocate to unique private investment opportunity when it is indeed unique and indeed opportunistic. We're talking with Preston McSwain of Fiduciary Wealth Partners, Adam Butler, CIO of Resolve Asset Management, and Andrew Miller, CIO of Miller Financial Management. Andrew, what what's on your mind there? Um, I would agree. Um, I think uh, you'd have to take a look at why something uh, would generate a return. Uh, and that kind of, I think, would agree with an equity is an equity is an equity. You generate the return. You know, you, you front capital with the understanding that uh, the capital could ultimately be worth zero uh, in the event of a, a bankruptcy or something like that. And that's generally what generates the equity uh, risk premium. And uh, you can kind of debate what form you might own that in. Um, you know, you could even argue owning uh, REITs uh, is really an equity risk premium. 
Um, so I, I think I would tend to agree with that statement. Um, as far as liquidity premium, um, I would expect that in a rational market, somebody who ties up capital for a longer period of time would demand a higher return. Um, but I guess if, if all risk premia are time varying, um, then I would expect the illiquidity premium to be time varying. And sometimes there may be no premium for providing capital uh, and then tying it up for a long period of time. Well, the new paper from um, Lu uh, Zhang and his crew on that are trying to promote their Q factor model, which I find very compelling personally. Um, they ran a variety of spanning tests on the Q factor model to see whether, you know, a wide variety of different premia actually delivered any meaningful alpha over the the long term. And and one whole category of um, premia were related to liquidity. And one of the I thought more surprising um, conclusions from that analysis was that they could not surface any uh, alpha from any specification uh, that is in that realm of liquidity premium, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, well, people, institutions especially, make a big deal of this so-called liquidity premium, but we really can't observe it. Certainly, we can't observe it in public markets. So I don't know why we should expect to observe it in private markets. Well, and, and to take that a step further, I think AQR recently published a, a paper on the illiquidity premium in the bond market, and they came to a similar conclusion that uh, according to their specifications in the test, they, they didn't find it there uh, yeah. either. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, Roger Ibertson has uh, some research that talks about the illiquidity premium, but if I understand the way that they do it, it's really more of a popularity premium not really a illiquidity premium uh, right. as far as they measure it. Right. And one of the uh, our fellow marchers this weekend is is Li Chen Ren from Vanguard, and she's talked about the illiquidity factor as, as Vanguard applies it. So there's there is definitely now it's I think it's one of those ultimate ironies that you're a Vanguard and you launch a strategy designed after illiquidity and you think that that thing's going to persist, um, <laughs> given that their asset raising potential. <laughs> It goes from illiquid to pretty liquid. Yeah. If if they have any success, it's sort of an interesting. Uh, that is ironic. In order to understand recursion, you must first understand recursion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, so one of the you, you've done a lot of different interesting papers. We talked a little bit about your stock and bond paper earlier this year, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the pieces, you know, you did some work on is you talked about your retiree type clients and, and sort of managing withdrawal rates is one of the pieces you did some work on and, sure. and you talked about the role of managed futures for that. Maybe, sure. maybe sort of tell the group a little bit about that research. Sure. Well, uh, I think we were talking uh, off air about uh, kind of correlation assumptions and how something that is said to have a zero correlation doesn't necessarily imply that it is going to provide protection on the downside when you need it. Uh, what it really means is uh, whether it will help or hurt is largely a coin flip. And um, if I'll make a real general assumption, uh, although true historically, it's still kind of a general assumption that stocks and bonds have a zero correlation or close enough that we'll call it zero. So um, as you build a portfolio for withdrawal rates, what you're really concerned about is kind of the, the worst cases historically and not necessarily for sudden drops, but kind of for long five to 10 year periods of time. And what what you find is by decreasing the magnitude of the kind of poor five and 10 year periods of time, you can increase withdrawal rates um, because you simply don't have to worry about the downside as much. So um, bonds actually have fairly large real drawdowns, um, actually larger than the real drawdowns of stocks. And the historically, the real drawdowns have actually lasted longer. This is Siegel's work, stocks in the long run, that stocks never had a more than 17-year negative real return, but bond for 30 years. Yes. So um, one of the ways, then, that you could potentially increase withdrawal rates is simply um, lessen uh, and increase the diversification of a portfolio um, to potentially help mitigate that, that downside risk. So uh, the paper takes a look at owning managed futures, which is really just kind of a proxy for a third leg of a portfolio that is uncorrelated uh, to both stocks and bonds. So it's kind of adding uh, something else with zero correlation to help improve the diversification. And by doing that, uh, historically, it had bumped uh, withdrawal rates um, about three quarters of a percent. 
And then I also take a look at, well, you know, that's that's a back test. So what happens if we shave the return assumptions of managed futures down to um, about a, a 0.5 sharp ratio, which is more akin to kind of a, a well-diversified um, stock bond portfolio historically? And does that still help? And looking at it that way, it still bumped safe withdrawal rates uh, by about half a percent or so. So just owning something that is un correlated to both stocks and bonds, but still is expected to provide some kind of risk premium, uh, really does help with withdrawal rates in portfolios. Adam, how do you think about those sharp ratios, return assumptions? Managed futures has been a tough category for the last decade, and maybe people have... Now, you could say, from a flows perspective, I think people haven't really left the category, but maybe you could tell me differently if you see things differently. So people are sticking with it for some of the really popular ones that I follow. Um, EQR as an example, but do, do you have any sense on the the return expectations that you have? Well, I mean, first of all, there's there's quite a bit of debate about whether or not we've had material flows into the managed futures category over the last five years. I mean, it seems like there is a big boost to assets, but a lot of that, about a quarter of the total assets in many of the managed futures indices actually come from or attributable to Bridgewater's Pure Alpha Fund, which I'm not sure, it doesn't really harvest, like it certainly doesn't load on traditional trend-following um, betas, and it's not very well explained by trend-following returns. So, you know, there's some question as to whether or not that's appropriate to include in the managed futures category. And if you take them out, then it ends up the managed futures category is well under $200 billion globally, um, even if you assume five times leverage, $1.5 trillion globally. We're talking about a $100, $120 trillion global market. And uh, so I, I think that the the argument that the premium has been arbitraged away has been overstated. Um, I think that a um, th there's a pretty compelling argument for the use of managed futures in most portfolios because they are really the only investment category that have historically produced positive convexity. And what I mean by that is the ability to produce their best returns when risky assets have historically produced their worst returns. Think about the typical managed futures index in 2008 when stocks were down 35-odd percent, then the managed futures index was up 20-25 percent. So that's a pretty nice um, um, offset to the risk that you're taking in the balance of your portfolio. And um, I mean, granted, it's been an interesting five to seven years for managed futures. Um, certain sectors of managed futures have, I think, done considerably better than others. It's been particularly difficult for short-term, ultra-short-term uh, managed futures, especially the type that focus on vol expansion. And I mean, the reality is, You've got at one end of the managed futures category, the sort of really short-term end, the behavior is very close to that of just buying put options. You're, you're, you're sort of strategically long vol. And it's obviously been an, a terrible environment to be long vol and an unbelievably profitable environment to be short vol, right? And so, so that's one thing. But if you, if you move out the, um, the spectrum to sort of long-term trend following on the order of 6 to 12 to, to 24 months, then you lose some of that positive convexity. So those, those ultra-short-term uh, drops that you get in the portfolio, the long-term trend following strategies, long-term managed future strategies, they won't typically offer much protection against those really short, acute drawdowns. But as Andrew and I were chatting about earlier, those, those acute drops don't tend to last very long. They're not the sort of sustained negative return environment that substantially derails the, um, the return or the, the wealth generating process, right? But what you're really concerned about are those sustained drawdowns, the type that we experienced in 2008, in 2000, in 91, in 81, 82, all through the 1970s. These are the periods that we really need to work, uh, work through. And the great thing about longer term or intermediate to longer term trend following is that they provide substantial protection against those sustained negative periods for stocks and bonds. But 
they also have a long-term positive risk premium. So you get your cake and you eat it too, to a, to, to a certain extent, right? But you still have to accept that you're going to suffer through some of those sharp short-term drops, like, for example, the type of drop that we all experienced in the beginning of this year. Andrew, so you, you wrote a paper on this, and would you say your clients incorporate this type of strategy into a portfolio in, in, to help manage their drawdowns? Sure. So we don't use uh, managed features specifically. Um, we have a, a couple of different strategies that we use that uh, are market-neutral uh, style or, or um, style premium or um, factors. So ones that incorporate value, <coughs> momentum, carry, um, defensive or low volatility. Um, we really try to diversify our diversifiers, uh, I guess, and really try to prepare for um, kind of an unknown future. So we're in our final two-minute countdown, so the show goes quick. Uh, maybe sort of closing final thoughts, anything you just wanted to wrap up the conversation? I'll start with you, Preston. Maybe a little bit back to Wes, and, and you know, good for him to pulling us all together. This is just great. He has a great phrase from the Marines. that says, um, sometimes you have to Barney things up, meaning that if the... A large purple dinosaur can't understand it, right? Um, uh, Then maybe it's not being heard. Um, And I I, I think our industry um, can be guilty of that sometimes, meaning not burning things up. Mm. I think what I hear from investors of all sizes, um, meaning just because because you're accredited doesn't mean you're necessarily sophisticated. Um, Just so you have a lot, 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 lot of money doesn't mean you can follow parts of this conversation. Um, one of the biggest challenges I think our industry has going forward is to make sure that we translate things into terms uh, that uh, that um, that everybody can understand. Adam? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the first things we say in our book is that risk is, in the end, is the probability that you won't hit your financial targets and uh-huh. that, therefore, investing should have the sole objective of minimizing that risk. And I think that the most likely method to minimize that risk, the highest probability method, is to seek out the largest number of diversified sources of return. So returns from sources that are produced for very different reasons and in very different economic environments. And then allocate to those premiums in um, the most balanced way possible, recognizing that um, different types of premiums have different types of different levels of risk, and certain premiums are more or less correlated to one another, and and so portfolio construction can be a pretty substantial force multiplier on um, risk-adjusted performance if done thoughtfully. Final quick thought. Um, I'd say that uh, it's kind of fun to be here to chat about uh, markets, but we're really here to. Uh, join together to remember service members who have fallen and uh, taste a little bit of the sacrifices that they make both both personally and also uh, in family circumstances that um, you really have an appreciation for the the courage that they have um, and it's kind of nice to be able to share in that a little bit. Well, thank you all for coming. It's be an interesting weekend for all of us all. And next year, everyone, look up March for the Fallen. You could all join Finance Twitter here with marching for, for our fallen soldiers. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor in Tourism Tree. And our discussion today was not tied to the offer of investment products and views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trades or affiliates. Thanks for listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.